Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Black 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 What is up, everybody? My name is James D. Fiore, and this is Blackball. Last week was the first anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And if you're like me, you watch the news, and half the time you think that Russia is about to retreat, and the other half you're worried about the provinces that have been annexed in Ukraine. It is a difficult war to sort of decipher. There's also a media war sort of happening as well. When I say war, what I really mean is that it's very difficult to find anything critical of Ukraine. Um, it's not difficult to find anything that's rightly, rightfully critical of Russia. But I've had a couple guests on lately that have sort of shaken the trees a little bit in that landscape. I had Seymour Hersh uh, last week who talked about the American alleged involvement in the Nord Stream pipeline bombing, and he got eviscerated online for that. And what I wanted to do after the year anniversary is have someone on uh, to help us sort of explain more of the military side of what's happening in Ukraine. And he's a friend of the show, and we've had him on before, and his name, he's an urban warfare expert, and his name is John Spencer. John, how are you, buddy? I'm great, brother. Thanks for having me back. No, no problem at all. Um, listen, I know that you're not you're not really involved in politics of stuff, and I didn't plan on asking you this, but the Nord Stream pipeline stuff. Do you have any opinion on that? On on who did it, and if you did, are you allowed to talk about it? <laughs> uh, so I have you know I have no insider information. I'm I'm as public and, and private as as you. Uh, I have opinions about it on just. There is a common sense reasoning on who would do it and why they would do it. And that doesn't point to the West, in my opinion. I'm not saying there's an investigation that will point to the most likely culprit and how it was done. Because it was an interesting operation for sure. Mm. Yeah. You're so you're so close to your chest, eh? Hey. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> um, yeah, I've, there... I've done this long enough to know when not to stick my foot in my mouth. I've only done it a few times. That's okay. Um, no, I respect it. I, I understand. Uh, Alex Fezziak on the show, um, and he's the CEO. I'm not sure if you know who he is. He's the CEO of Heart of the Ukraine, or sorry, Heart of the World Ukraine chapter, I guess it is. He's also responsible for bringing equipment to the front lines. Um, he imports strategic equipment like radios and drones and things like that, not like surveillance drones. And the interesting thing is he told me that the Ukrainian military had figured out how to outfit a surveillance drone so that it could drop a grenade as it's surveilling, which I think is really kind of interesting. And then I saw this headline. Did Ukraine start a drone war in Russia? 
Does the defense ministry have a plan to protect our cities? A pro Kremlin figure wrote on Telegram, a sign of growing unease. Is there a drone war happening in that war? Absolutely. And can you explain how what it looks like? Sure. So it, it looks as unique as the different types of guns people carry. There's so many drones being involved in the operation in Ukraine from the beginning. So even in the beginning, Ukraine had the TB2 Baraktar, the Turkish drone that's like a tank killer that was really big in the second Nagorno-Karabakh war. Um, but as soon as this became a people's war as well, you had DGI drone, stuff that you know my kids play with uh, from China and using those for surveillance, for um, calling in artillery strikes. Um, some of these drones now, they, they've outfitted with, they can drop six munitions, not just one grenade, wow. artillery rounds. Um, they can drop mortar rounds on top of, I've seen them drop, I've seen them drop uh, a mortar round into the hull of a tank that was open, like a very expensive Russian T-90 tank. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. And so that's just, uh, it's just so many. And Ukraine has outfitted drones with even like special engines. So, uh, a few months ago, they sent drones into strategic bombing planes in Russia like these are like a billion dollar planes and they launched a drone who doesn't, that doesn't normally have the capability to do that. But Ukraine was the, the ingenuity of Stalin's army. I mean, it, it, it was, it's a birth, it is known for military innovation and ingenuity. So they're taking different types of drones, whether it's a flying drone or a rip, you know, a river sea drone and doing things that nobody thought was possible. So that headlines about some very recent, uh, Ukrainian drones that have that have been sent into Russia proper, um, which is a you know, basically bringing the fight to Russian territory. There's a lot of caution in that um, because a lot of the strikes that have happened in the past, whether that's in Sebastopol and Crimea uh, uh, or other places where there's a lot of plausible deniability by Ukraine on, I don't know how that bridge blew up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a tough one. Um, I, I, I just read this recently. The military situation is becoming increasingly difficult around eastern Ukrainian town of Bakhmut. President Zelensky said on Monday, as many of Ukraine's battlefields turn to mud. In the Bakhmut sector, the situation is constantly becoming more difficult, Zelensky said in his nightly address. The enemy is constantly destroying everything that can be used to protect our positions for fortification and defense. Russian's defense ministry claimed its forces destroyed a Ukrainian ammunition depot near the town near the town, the focal point of Russia's advances in eastern Ukraine, also shooting down four HIMARS missiles and five drones launched by Ukrainian forces. It feels like the story, the main story um, at the beginning of the war was the uh, the heart and courage of um, the Ukrainian people. And now the story seems to be like they're everyone's still kind of trying to hold on land that Russia is continuously trying to annex. What kind of progress has really been ground by Ukraine in this war? So it's tough, right? So Ukraine is the second largest country in Europe. The, the, even the maps that we see, it's really, it's kind of like the, you know, those comedy shows where the actual size of Africa compared to where it's, it's shown on the map. Ukraine is mm. huge. Um, so what's the progress? So in the beginning, all, you know, like eight cities were under attack and, and Ukraine defended the, all of them. 
um, besides you know the fall of Harrison and Mariupol, in a, a couple other places. And then about six months ago, Ukraine pulled off like one of the biggest military victories in modern times with a surprise attack, retaking hundreds of kilometers of land that Russia had taken, secured. And Russia hasn't had a victory since six months ago. Like they haven't, they haven't taken anything since they took the, the city of Severodonetsk six months ago. They've lost the city of Kherson, which was a strategic victory because, as you know, like you, may, you keep mentioning, um, Putin illegally annexed four areas of Ukraine that he didn't, he didn't even control. Um, he signed it into the Russian Constitution, which was, a, was immediately um, voted on in the UN as legal in accordance with the UN Charter by like 130 countries. It was just crazy, Unani- not unanimously, but overwhelmingly um, that it was illegal. And then a couple months later, he loses the capital of Kherson, which is is not just a city, but it's one of the regions he annexed, and he lost that city. Um, but you know, war is you know war is complex. All the news right now is about this city of Bakhmut, right? So the city of about seventy thousand people before the battle had happened, and unlike some of the previous in the beginning, where there was an intermixing of civilians and the civilians were involved. Um, in like Bakhmut, most of the civilians who wanted to get out got out. So it's you know, two militaries clashing in urban terrain, which you know is what I do. Mm-hmm. But the the actual city holds no value to either side. I mean, hmm. of course, it holds value to Ukraine because it's Ukrainian land. But like in the Battle of Stalingrad or other famous urban battles that we know about, they actually overcome actual military value, and it's about politics. It's about political reasoning. And President Zelensky visited Bakhmut, you know, a few months ago, right before he visited the United States and said, you know, Bakhmut is the fight for Ukraine. He gave the Bakhmut flag to the House, you know, the, the, the Congress when he visited. It's now taken on a political value, just like Stalingrad did for Stalin because his name was on it, where the, both sides are fighting beyond reason for a piece of ground that has no advantage to hold to either side. Yeah, I, I, it's really, really interesting. I, I I just thought of this now um, while you're talking about Zelensky. The the is it normal for presidents or leaders, world leaders during a time of war, to have body doubles? <laughs> did you see this? I did not see that. I I I, I mean, he's he's probably the the most important person to protect. Because just like I said about the Battle of Kiev, when I, when I went back there in July, had had the the Russians just got into the city, they didn't have to take it, and then and they forced him to flee or kill him, we would not be having a war today. Yeah, no, it's the the one I'm talking about. Biden was over there, and they were walking up a staircase, and you could see another Zelensky on the bottom of the staircase. It was just like <laughs> it, it made its way around, and then uh, I'm not sure if it was deleted or not. I just I just found. Interesting. I didn't, I wasn't even knocking it. There were people that are, you know, there's, you know, there's people that are just like, um, not pro Russia, but uh, they they don't want this war. They don't want American blood and treasure to be spent on this war. Whatever it is, um, we're we're saying that um, the whole war is a scam because he has a body double, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure a body double is standard procedure for a lot yeah. of. I mean, look at yeah. you know, the whole puppy face Putin. I mean, like Putin has multiple, and Saddam Hussein yeah. had multiple. Like, yeah, it's. I'm not saying that that's what. What, what was there, but it would be not uncommon. Yeah. Okay. Um, the 
almost certain guarantee that Ukraine will be a member of NATO eventually. Will that not, it, it seems like, that, that's what I've been reading lately. Let's just say, uh, let's just operate it as a hypothetical, that, that, they, that they're on their way. Would that not be a, a, a recipe for perpetual war with Russia? I don't think so. Um, just based on the history of the, well, one, the history of Russia in general, the history of the post-World War II world that was created, right, in all the multi-international organization, Russia was invited into NATO back then. Um, and, and, and actually, I only remember the name because it rhymes with, you know, it's the Molotov. So the Molotov was the Russian foreign minister at the time this narrative that was has been stated in the past that the reason russia invaded ukraine was because ukraine might have joined nato and he couldn't have a nato country on his border somebody said that nobody you know nato would never push closer east you know no inch like that's that's just a, a mixing of speeches and positions if that wasn't was not that a reagan, that was a reagan negotiating point with uh gorbachev was I don't, it was never a stated, um, so yes, it, it's a combination of speeches, but it was never a stated, it is a narrative that Russia has had for a while that they're being threatened. What's being threatened is Russia's way of life, not the borders. It's the fact that Ukraine as an independent and after the you know, 2014 revolution when they ousted the Russian-backed president it, through, a, through an election, the threat to Russia is a vibrant Ukraine, non-Soviet, you know, non-Russia-backed country thriving, which is what is happening. That was the threat to Russia. If Russia's threat is is not having NATO on its border, it just lost that with Finland doubling its borders with a NATO country, and Finland will will absolutely be a part of NATO. I hope Ukraine is a part of NATO, but that that is years to come. You can't be engaged in an active com conflict and there's a whole bunch of other things that have to happen so that's i think that's years down the road i i hope it it the process starts for sure what is the appetite in america right now for um the financial and uh weapons uh being sent to ukraine i mean it feels like and this is a canadian looking um looking down on america just because i'm up north not because i'm looking down but um that the republicans are sort of cemented in their mess about how this war is a proxy war and it's not necessary and all that kind of stuff, which I find interesting also because the Republicans used to feel like they were the party of the military. That That's just what it always felt like. And um, is, is that changing? And then the second part of that question is uh, whether or not uh, the appetite in America for sending over money and weapons is waning. Um, so on the first part, that's pretty easy to answer. Um, no, I, I think the, the Republicans, we still have bipartisan support, especially even now with the changeover in the House and the and the key leaders in like the House Armed Service Committee and things like that. The Republicans support supporting Ukraine. There are some far right Republicans, hmm. um, which I'm sure you could name some of them, who have this as their their political thing, right? Their thing is we're wasting money and we need to spend this money here, here, and here, blah, blah, blah. Um, or there's corruption, or you know, the CIA was involved in the you know, the revolution, all these things. I don't think none of that's true. I think from all the key leaders, the re key Republican leaders, they actually want more action in Ukraine, not less. 
more weapons, um, not less. And, and the money thing is really always ironic because it's usually people parroting things like Tucker Carlson and people like that who just had this narrative that is actually not based in facts. Like the amount of money that the United what? States- What? Tucker? Yeah, right? <laughs> uh, the amount of money the United States has sent to Ukraine is like 1% of our annual defense budget. Hmm. Um, and a lot of the stuff that we have provided in Lend-Lease or whatever is actually- us upgrading our own stuff like hey we'll give you this and then hug congress we need to buy new stuff for the stuff we just gave that's called the drawdown we're actually it's not junk and i don't like people to say that but we're actually giving ukraine our inventory and then buying newer stuff for ourselves so right this is where the money is always funny but just by sheer gdp and expenditure on defense we're sending a fraction of what the U.S. spends on our own defense budget, and we're getting our bang for our buck. We've said for years that our two competitors are Russia and China, and Ukraine is destroying the Russian military, and we're paying pennies on the dollar to make that happen. What other than other than the political um, blowback or or the political uh, you know? Uh, afterthought of 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 this taking place what is essentially wrong with china trying to broker a peace deal nothing wrong with that if it's if it's a if it's a i'm all for it if it's a you know a real interest in negotiating rather than trying to freeze the lines now which by the the greater international community this was an illegal war fought illegally so there's this thing called just war and just war theory one is a, there's a, a just a real reason for you invading or starting a war. And then two, there's a, a you execute the war in accordance with all the laws. And Putin just doesn't have either. So, yeah, China's negotiation plan is there's nothing there. But I'm not against anybody holding you know a conference and bringing people to the table, hopefully, which leads to Russia going backing up to the 1991 borders of Ukraine. Yeah, it, 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 that's another thing. Um, it feels like um, the conventional wisdom is that Crimea is lost no matter what happens during this war. Would you tend to agree with that? No, I mean, one, I don't, I think that's, a, that's for the warring parties to decide. Most right. people, to include us, recognize that Russia Ill- illegally annexed Crimea. Mm-hmm. Um, war is is politics by other means, so... Does Ukraine militarily have the capability to retake Crimea? With 50-plus nations um, providing it with the weapons it needs, I maybe. Is it the, you know, the red line for Russia as a, as a state, that Crimea is Russia? Because you know, they did a lot of gentrif- you know, basically moving out the Ukrainians, killing them, deporting them, and filling Crimea with Russians. So if the peace plan is like, let's have a you know, internationally brokered election in Crimea, right? So you know, that's one of the you know, one of the ideals that is out there, right? Because Russian elections are pretty much by a gun, uh, in, in, like in Kherson. If some international party said, let's have an election, there would likely be more Russians in Crimea at this point than there are Ukrainians because of what Russia's done since it took it. Right. Is there a... Um, what- Educate me here for a second, because I, I I don't know that. I feel I felt like I used to know the proxy war, 
and and now I feel like I don't. Um, fifty nations um supplying Ukraine with weapons, that, that doesn't make it a proxy war, does it? Yeah, it does. Like, yeah, it's it, it does. Yeah, I thought a proxy war was when uh there was a third party theater for two nations duking it out against each other. But this feels like an invading force in one country, and then just friends of that invaded country helping them out. Isn't there sort of a subtle difference between those two things? There are subtle differences what you just explained, but both of those are proxy wars where if, if one country is providing another with the tools it needs to fight its enemy. So just like, you know, Charlie Wilson's war, you know, Americans provided Mujahideen of Afghanistan weapons to fight the Soviets. There's really no difference here where Americans and 50 other nations are providing Ukraine the tools it needs to fight Russia, who is trying to upset the global international order to include U.S. interests in the region. That's a proxy war. I have no problem saying um, if there's a proxy war going on in Ukraine, but it's also with reason. There is good and evil. There is just war. Um, there's plenty of wars and conflicts going on around the world right now that you know, that aren't as impactful on the globe as the war in Ukraine is right now. Yeah, it feels that way. Um, it also feels really interesting to see certain journalists uh, accuse uh, the Ukrainian government of being like the big laundering operation on the planet now. Um, when that has to do with weapons manufacturers, that has to do with aid and things like that. I ask you this almost every time you're on and and, and I, I don't mean it because i actually believe this but i'm always very suspect when i see um someone get treated as if they've never done anything wrong and i know that war is often through the media as well as on the battlefield but i've never seen someone like Zelensky before as a political figure just walk on water <laughs> you yeah. know no, and I, I know I, he's doing a good job i get it yeah. but like there has to be something. And I think it's part of the reason why people, why there's a segment of the population that probably should be pro-Ukrainian, but are probably more neutral is because they see it that too. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I understood what you said in the beginning of this show about, you know, I, I'm sure people put me in a very pro-Ukrainian camp um, and I am very pro-Ukrainian because I'm pro-human rights, pro, um, you know, the right and wrong, evil and good and, uh, I'm also an old soldier, so I, I, things I've seen the Russian soldiers do are inhumane and have nothing to do with war, and it's just savagery. Mm. But um, I also laugh at the ideals of people saying Ukrainian government is corrupt. There's a resource curse. Look, the United States led the Afghanistan government for 20 years, and it was the mo one of the most corrupt governments in the world by the corruption index while we were here, there overseeing it. So to say that there's corruption in Ukraine is, is pretty laughable. And I'm not saying Zelensky does no wrong, but he has to be given credit for his, you know, Churchill level leadership of this country who had just come out of a revolution, had just established a government that they wanted, you know, no ties with the East and wanted to ties with the West and wanted to resolve corruption, which was rampant. Um, and he's still firing people a lot when he had, when corruption is identified. So you this idea that one, that we don't have corrupt politicians uh, is pretty funny. 
uh, like we're saints and we can point at there's, there's human nature, but you got to give Zelensky credit. I'm not saying he does no wrong for the amazing leadership he has shown to even personal injury to himself and his family to stay in certain places or be in certain locations for sure. But I, I acknowledge that nobody, I mean, he's not the Pope. You know. No, well, he's not that bad. You're right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> can you tell I was raised Catholic? Yeah, right. <laughs> what do you, we, we only have a few minutes left. Um, what do you hope to see um, in the next, say, few months um, in order for this uh, war to reach a tipping point? I'm not asking for a prediction, but based yeah. on where you see both sides situated right now and 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 where um the the boots on the ground are what do you hope to see in the next few months yeah so i'm i'm actually going there very soon just to continue my research and you can't continue to talk about these places and, and i i know you 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 get at people like okay what's your expertise and how do you get that expertise so i, I like to travel there to get a sense from even the nation as this is a nation at war and I think people forget that they think they want to compare the Ukrainian military versus the Russian military. Hmm. That's not the war that, that I see when I go there, I see the Ukrainian people against the Russian military. I see a, you know, a war of survival versus a war of conquest and savagery. The predictions is unfortunately we're, we're still, we have for the last ever since the war started incrementally arming Ukraine with the tools they need. Had we given them, high Mars and all these different fancy words for artillery and um, armored personnel carriers. Had we just given that all to them 11 months ago, the, the, the situation would be a lot different. So over the coming months, they're going to get tanks. Um, they're going to get our, the, the armored personnel carrier that I, I commanded in combat, the Bradley. Um, they're going to get more air defense systems so that Russia can't try that tactic of terrorism that they were doing two months ago with just bombing every city. Um, which are all war crimes, but they're going to get more air defense systems to take that tactic away. And then more of this war of attrition will continue where they're, you know, Russian military and Ukrainian military are clashing. Hopefully what I'm hoping over the next couple of months, though, they get some of these critical systems like the 300 plus tanks that will form a tank division. And there can be some greater movements because right now we believe the Russian offensive has started. The Russian, what they call Russian spring offensive. And actually, it's very underwhelming, even from Russian experts, that this is what we're seeing. Well, Ukraine will punch back next. It'll, it will go on their offensive with whatever capabilities they've rallied and how fast the continued Western aid. It's not just Western. West is not just the United States, but you know tanks from multiple European countries and how they bring that together to where they, they punch russia in the face in a couple places that are key in like the dunbas or where they're fighting right now i mean it's not gonna you know this war is not decided over that city called bakhmut this war gets decided on who can maintain its alliances right mm -hmm. this is the fear of china backing russia with weapons which would be a really bad idea for my personally for china especially with you know some of the issues that china has and china doesn't like to back losers Ukraine maintaining this alliance will be a, a key part of going forward and keeping those flows of, of weapons. I mean, professionals talk logistics and amateurs talk tactics. This war continues or doesn't based on who can keep it supplied. And Russia is turning to Iran for drones. 
that's pretty sad. Yeah. Um, John Spencer, I love having you on. Um, you make me feel both uh, educated and stupid at the same time because I know nothing about any of this stuff, and I'm really happy that I have you in my network to come uh, every every couple months and and to give me your updates. Much, please stay. Excuse me, please stay safe over there. When are you leaving? Uh, oh, I can't tell you exactly, James. Oh, right, right, right. right I forgot. Do you need a biographer? Because I'd love to go. Oh no, wait, I'd be in a war zone. Never mind, I'll do it for my. <laughs> John Spencer, thank you very much. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, brother. You have, you have a good night. Uh, he's great. Um, I don't remember how I found him. I think I, I just scrolling through Twitter, and uh, this was like not quite a year ago, maybe maybe nine, ten months ago when I first had him on. And uh, yeah, I rely on John to to sort of educate me, as I said, about uh, all things Russia, Ukraine. So that was uh, informative uh, to have him on. We'll have him on again soon, and we'll see you next time on Blackball. everywhere the imagination dares it's for the open-minded the pleasure seeker it's jeff woods with the new podcast about relationships and sexuality theme-based with special guests blue hotel hotline at every episode climaxes with an adult bedtime story get a room and listen in at the blue hotel Begins Friday, September 23rd. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com.